Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 43. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Let's pray. Father, as we come into your presence in the preaching of your word, I pray, Father, that you would be pleased to work your truth into our hearts deeply by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Father, that we would all, every single one of us, come to Jesus. I pray that we would come knowing what we need from Him and finding in Him all we need. Father, may there be, please, no resistant heart Whatever pride, whatever vain thing is in our hearts, whatever is distracting us, whatever would steal us away from you, Lord, I pray that you would break down the walls and do what you must to bring us back. Lord, help our unbelief, our pride, take it all away, and may we see truly the majesty and the glory of your Son and come to Him full of faith and joy. We thank You for what You will do. Please do it for Your name's sake, not ours. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Through the, the words and the works of Jesus, over these several paragraphs that make up chapter 18, verse 1, to 19, verse 10, the Lord is giving to you and to me a message. A two-part message, really, if you want to break it down. Number one is this. If you're going to come to Jesus, you must know your need. If you're going to come to Jesus, you must know your need. And we're all needy and we share the same need in common. The second thing is this. Knowing your need, don't let it keep you from coming. So number one is, if you're going to come to Jesus, you must know your need. And number two, knowing your need, don't let it keep you from coming. Because we see a lot of this going on in these, these 
paragraphs here. We see a lot of teachings and in the form of parables and encounters with Jesus where you have a mix of people and a mix of responses. For example, first of all, if you're going to come to Jesus, you must know your need. But who walks away from Jesus over these paragraphs that we've covered and we're covering who don't get what they need? Who walks away not getting what they need? The self-righteous Pharisee, for one, of the parable of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee who trusts in himself that he is righteous and treats others with contempt, prays this great prayer to God in the temple vicinity and goes away spiritually impoverished. The tax collector is the one who cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says that's the man who goes home justified rather than the other. Because the Pharisee doesn't know what he needs. Or consider, for example, the, the rich young ruler whose encounter with Jesus we studied last week. He comes to Jesus, we really don't know what for. I mean, it's a lot like the self-righteous Pharisee who just blathers on and on, speaking nothing in his prayer. There's, there's this rich young man who goes away from Jesus sad, just as rich, but as spiritually impoverished as ever, because he doesn't know what he needs. Then there's that second part. So first, if you're going to come to Jesus, you must know your need. But second, knowing your need, don't let it keep you from coming. Well, who who would do that? Who wouldn't come if they know their need? I can think of two kinds of people. People who think, on one hand, like this blind beggar, that maybe they don't have enough going for them. That they're not good enough. Or like the tax collector on whom the Pharisee looks down, who basically says, you know, thank God I'm not like this tax collector. He's saying he's not good enough for you, like me. And I know a lot of people who tend to think, I don't have enough going for me. I can't serve as well. I'm not as useful in the kingdom. There's also people who don't come because they're afraid they have too much against them. An example of that could be what we're going to see next week as we study the encounter of Jesus with Zacchaeus, the infamous tax collector who becomes the famous convert. You know, the the rich young ruler walks away spiritually impoverished but holding on to his wealthy, uh, wealthy, worldly riches. But Zacchaeus, he's not afraid to make himself poor in order to gain Christ. But there's a man who could think, I have too much against me. How many don't come to Jesus because they think I have too much sin? Even Christians who needs to be constantly coming to Christ may think my sin is too recent, my sin is too frequent, my sin is too delinquent, or all of the above, and don't come to Jesus as they ought. So come to Christ. Come to Jesus knowing your need, but do not let your need keep you from coming. So this is what I think chapter 18 verse 1 to chapter 19 verse 10 is all about. Do you remember what the disciples said after Jesus, um, he was speaking to them after the rich young ruler walked away? 
they said, who then can be saved after Jesus had said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they said, then who can be saved? This rich young ruler with all his righteousness and morality to commend him is is truly lost, can't be saved, who can be? And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so that's what you and I are privileged and we're blessed to see in these next two weeks. Today, next Sunday too, Lord willing. What we are seeing is Jesus making the impossibility reality. As he brings these two desperate men, one who doesn't have enough going for him, and the other who has way too much against him, he brings these two desperate men joyfully into the kingdom of God. I wonder what is going on in your hearts these days. I'm glad I can't know, and sometimes I wish that I did know just so I could speak to you, especially personally. Let me say first, I care who you are and I care what you do. But on the other hand, I don't care who you are and I don't care what you've done. You, whoever you are, come to Jesus. Come to Him. Don't let anything hold you back. Don't let your weakness hold you back from coming. Don't let the world keep you back from coming. You come to Him for what you need because He will give you all that you need. Maybe you don't feel need this morning. I mean, really feel it pressing down upon you. Maybe you don't feel your infirmity and your weakness. Maybe you don't feel the weight of the guilt of sin upon your conscience. Pray. If you don't feel your need, pray that God would make you feel the weight of your need. Because I'm telling you, apart from the intervention of God, that weight would crush you. I want you to feel your need. And I also want you to pray that your eyes would be opened, like the blind beggar's eyes, to see and to really perceive the majesty of Christ so that you will be compelled and nothing will stop you from coming to Christ. I want you to see Him so clearly so that you know that Christ is all you need and so that Christ is all that you want. I want all of us to see Him with those eyes. Okay, so first encounter with Jesus. This is the one we're studying today, that of the blind beggar. But first, as we're considering together how Jesus makes the impossibility of men entering the kingdom actual reality, we're going to look at the blind beggar, but first ask, how does he do this? How can Christ make what is impossible, not only possible, but actual? The answer is found in verses 31 to 33. He said, it says, and taking the twelve, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Why? Because the word of God, the scriptures cannot be broken. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. 
How much more plain does Jesus have to get for His disciples to finally understand? But as we see in verse 34, they don't get it. They don't grasp what He says. You know, this is actually the sixth time since Jesus has spoken of His impending rejection and suffering unto death. It started in chapter 9. Jesus announced that He would be rejected. And that was really a, a, a hinged chapter in Luke's narrative. Because you remember, up until then, He's in Galilee. He's in the north. It's just one display of His glory after another. And the people are wowed and the crowds flock to Him. And there are seeds of opposition along the way, but most of all, mostly I should say, He has all of this popular acclaim. I mean, they're ready right now to take Him and make Him king. And then Jesus says He's going to be rejected. And it says in verse 51 of chapter 9, it says, When the days drew near for Him to be taken up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. And then follows this journey narrative. That's where we've been, uh, what we've been doing now, focusing on. Jesus' face is set on Jerusalem, and along the way, He's making announcements. He's saying to His disciples, I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And they don't understand. It's weird, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's not that they can't understand words. Like, are these guys this slow? He says He's going to be mocked spit, shamed, flogged, killed. It's pretty clear. It's not that. It's not that they don't understand plain words and the plain meaning of those words. But something is not computing. Let me pause just before I I move on to tell you what's not computing. Here in this announcement, Jesus is giving to us more detail about what his physical suffering will entail than any other announcement of his suffering and death that he has given. And when you look at this, these words and his prediction and what he will suffer, he who is beyond all of our praises, they will mock and they will shame the one who has given them all of their life they will spit on. He will be torn into, battered, bruised, lashed, cut, stripped, and hung, and nailed up for the sinner. And the blood that He pours out will be for the ransom of all who believe. For for this He had been set apart from the very beginning. This is what the prophets wrote about. This is what all of Scripture has forecast for us. This is what God promised from the beginning. It's written of Him in the last book that He is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He is the descendant of Eve that God promised would come to crush the head of the serpent. This is what Scripture all is working toward and then what all of Scripture afterward is explaining. This is why Jesus came. So that you and I 
freed by his death and by his resurrection, may through faith in him come joyfully into the kingdom of God. This is how Jesus Christ makes the impossible actual for all who believe that we who who are traitors to the kingdom may actually enter the kingdom as full-fledged heirs with Christ. This is what Jesus has done. This is what he's talking about. And the disciples, again, they don't understand. And so back to the whole failure to compute. Why? What is their real issue here? Let me tell you what it is. They have seen and they have understood the might of Jesus, haven't they? One display of glory after another. These works of wonders, simply by His Word, they get it. They see the might. But what they don't understand, on the other hand, is the meekness of Jesus Christ and the depth to which that meekness will descend. And, And what they can't get is how, in fact, the perfect might of Christ and the perfect meekness of Christ will meet, intersect, and come together perfectly at the cross. This is the ultimate display of who Christ is. So that at the cross, perfect might and perfect meekness meet to reveal His majesty. Do you get this? Do you understand this? And this has, is this the thing? It, it, it must be the thing. So is it the thing that compels you to Jesus, the majesty of Christ, the one in whom might and meekness perfectly meet? You see, it's in meekness, utter meekness, that He hangs upon the cross. But it's by the cross that He ascends in might to the right hand of God and is exalted above all and given the name which is above every name. Do you remember John in Revelation at the beginning of the book when he, when he is actually crying because no one has been found to open the scroll and to unseal, to break the seven seals which will bring about to completion the end of the age and judge the wicked and redeem the earth and save the people of God. And John is saying, who is worthy? No one is found. And he begins to cry. And then they say, look, it's the mighty lion of the tribe of Judah. He has prevailed and He is worthy. And they sing His praises because He can open the scroll and unseal it and bring about the end of all things. And so John looks. He looks for the lion of the tribe of Judah. And who does he see? He sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. That is our God. And that is His majesty, the mighty lion of the tribe of Judah and the completely meek lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Do 
you see it. Do you see, do you perceive with the eyes of your heart the majesty of Christ? If you don't see it, you can't be saved. You can't see it yourself. God must give you the eyes by His Spirit. He must awaken you to perceive the eyes of faith, the glory of Christ that is irresistible to every single soul who will come to Him. Do you see? Let's look at this individual who does see it. He perceives in Jesus all that he needs. He sees the majesty of Christ like so few of his time really truly saw it. And the thing is about this individual that he is at the worst advantage because he is a blind beggar. Verse 35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. I love this passage because here's this guy completely unaware. He he came to his station at the roadside, at the entrance to Jericho, ready, hoping that he'll scrape by today, that he is going to make ends meet, that people will give him enough food or enough money to buy food, that he can just get by and live to see another day. But he expects tomorrow he's going to be back at this same spot. And then there's this commotion. Trampling feet. Voices excited all around him. A crowd like perhaps he can never remember before. What is going on? He's tugging at people. I just imagine him sitting Maybe, I don't know. He's just, he's tugging at people. What is going on? He's, he's feeling around. He doesn't care who's, you know, who he might be bothering. What? Tell me what's happening. And they say, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. All of a sudden, who cares about the money? Who cares about the food? It's not about just making ends meet anymore. It's not about just getting by. He has a chance today to really, truly live. He has a chance today to be delivered from everything because He knows that in Jesus, there is the One who can meet every need that He has. And so He cries out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Think of the advantages that everybody has over this guy. Go back to the rich young ruler. Look at the disciples. Consider the crowd that is obstructing him. All of them, it's like they have the inside lane on the track. Right? They have the inside lane. What does he have? He doesn't even have a lane. Because he's not going anywhere. He's stuck in his beggar station because he can't see. All of these other people can see whatever they want. And they can go wherever they want. So if they want, they can follow Jesus right on down the road. But not Him. Because He can't see. But here's the thing. God has given to this man an incredible mercy. Because even though his physical eyes have been blind, God has given sight to his spiritual heart. And he can perceive in Jesus a majesty that will help even him. He can see the might of Jesus. 
and the meekness of Jesus to have compassion even on him. And so you can see this in what he shouts. Immediately, everyone else is saying, Jesus of Nazareth. What does that mean? There's plenty of Jesuses in that day. And I suspect over time, there has been more than one Jesus of Nazareth. But at this time, there's really only one, even if there were others. There could have been others. There could have been other Jesus, Jesuses of Nazareth in that day. Jesus was a popular name. Nazareth is a backwater town, but anyway, could have been. But in the mind of the people, there's only one. Simply because of who he is and what he has done. Well, this man gets it. And he computes. And immediately he says, Jesus, son of David. No one else in Luke's record talks this way. And I want you to understand this. This is why you need to know the whole arc of the Bible story. So that you, when you read these words, you can be like, ah, that is so good. Just to see this man calling out to Jesus with this title. 1,000 years before, God had come in His grace to David of Judah, the great king of Israel. And God had made David a covenant promise. These words from 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 13. When your days are fulfilled, the Lord said, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Out of that covenant promise, which we call the Davidic covenant, there grew some of the grandest promises in all of the Old Testament prophecies. Here's a familiar one to you. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it from this time forth and forevermore. On whose throne? On the throne of David. There is coming one whose kingdom will be forever. It's an extension. It's an implication. It's the hope of the Davidic covenant that there is a greater heir who's coming. So, over the years of exile, Jerusalem's destroyed. The Davidic dynasty is nearly wiped out. They're not on the throne at the time, but the promise keeps getting repeated. Jeremiah chapter 22. Or 23 rather. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Branch? Think family tree. Royal family tree. I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Ezekiel 34. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And understand, of course, this is long after David has been laid to rest with his fathers. And it is several hundred years yet before Jesus has come. But it says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Three chapters later in Ezekiel, my servant David shall be king over them. So, the people of God 
over the centuries are waiting for the promised heir, whom they also call the Messiah, because he is God's anointed. They can't wait for him to come. They're suffering until he comes. But it's the hope of these people. So as soon as this blind man hears Jesus of Nazareth, it computes with him. All of these people, I want you to get this, they had seen with their eyes what this man had only heard in reports. Displays of his glory. Wonder-working power. Miracles of mercy. And each and every one of these people, they have this possibility that he doesn't have. They can be, if they so choose, and many of them already had been, they can be eyewitnesses. But he can't. All he has is what he has heard. But again, God had given him the deeper sight that merely human eyes don't have. He believes Jesus of Nazareth is the true son of David, the heir to the throne of God's kingdom, the great promise and his singular hope. And so he cries out as soon as he hears, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The crowd What do they do? We've seen it already. They tell him to shut up. Shut up, you dumb fool. I don't know why. Maybe they, not all of them speak so rudely, but I, it it feels that way from what it says. It says they rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Jesus has better things to do. Don't you know he's going to Jerusalem? Don't you know that there is a plan there to give him the throne? He's going to raise up an army. He's going to deliver us from Rome. He's got Bigger, more important business. Or maybe they're just thinking beggars should be seen and not heard or something along those lines. But they tell him to be quiet. So it says in verse 39, those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. He had gone, this is what I believe, He had gone on long enough not being able to see Jesus. Not being able to get where He was and follow Him down the road and be an eyewitness to the majesty of Christ. That had gone on long enough. Keep silent? Let Him pass me by? Not a chance! And so He cries out all the more. The man is going nuts. All these people trying to suppress Him. And He will not have it. Let me, let me say something real quick to you. You see how, how dumb these people look. I mean, what do you think of them? Man, what a bunch of jerks. I mean, you know, that's understating it. How could they treat this man this way? Jesus can heal him right then and there, just a word, and they would do this to him. Do not fail to sympathize with people. Don't fail to feel what they must be feeling. Before you give any kind of quick word, you don't know all the details, you don't know their backstory, you don't know what is underneath the cover of the book. Before we come out with harsh judgments and condemnations, sympathize. Try to feel what they feel. Before we go after some Loony liberal. Before we 
blast the pagans. Before we condemn harshly those who flaunt their sin. Or just the person who looks like he is totally wasting everything that God ever gave him. Sympathy. It's a Christ-like thing who sympathizes with our weaknesses, who had every single one of them, all of our temptations, and was the only one without sin. Sympathize. Or you might go down as like these people, least like a jerk and a fool. So he cries out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. Verse 40, And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Not that Jesus doesn't know. It's obvious. But he wants to hear the expression of his faith. Lord, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Why does this man want to see? Because he wants to become an eyewitness to the revelation of God. For one thing, something that we all take for granted. He wants to be the eyewitness to God's revelation of His glory and creation. Don't be one of those people that loses, and it's so easy, the childlike wonder at what God has done in the world. John Calvin once wrote, There is not one blade of grass. There is no color in this world that is not intended to make us rejoice. Do you believe that? And do you feel within you that capacity when you just stop and consider? We're so busy, we need to do this more, to stop and consider. But when you do, if you do, does it turn to rejoicing? awe and wonder at what God has done. I think a lot of you do. If I look at social media and see posts on flowers and things like that, our God is an awesome God. So I think that's one reason he wants to see. He wants to be an eyewitness to God's glory and creation. But not only for that revelation, but he wants to finally be able to fix his eyes on Jesus. As his eye, the eyes of his heart have already been fixed on Jesus, the Son of David, So he wants to be able to fix his eyes. Why does he want to see? Because he wants to be able to get up from that beggar station and be able to follow Jesus down the road. He wants to be a disciple of Christ. So the Lord said to him, your faith has made you well. He cried out to Jesus and he would not be silenced. He was not going to let his weakness stop him. He was not going to let the world suppress him. And Jesus, passing on his way with his face set on Jerusalem, headed there to die, stopped. And he granted to this man sight and salvation. Church family, men, women, children, all. Be like this man. Whatever you must do, whatever you must pray, however much you must humble yourself before God, be like Him and don't let anything, don't let anyone 
keep you from Jesus Christ. Don't let your weakness keep you from Jesus. You may feel today, my life has passed me by. I haven't been able to accomplish all that much. How much difference have I made? I don't have a lot of ability. I don't have a lot of education or whatever. I don't have enough going for me. So you don't measure up by the standard of the world. You are just the kind that Jesus wants. You are just the kind that He wants. What does He say? What does the Word of God say? 1 Corinthians 1. Not many powerful, not many noble are called. You feel the weakness. You feel the brokenness of your sin. I say it again. You are just the kind that He wants. Don't let your sin... How many of you have something that you wouldn't want to share succumbing to temptation just this past week? Don't let your sin keep you from coming to Jesus Christ. You are just the kind He wants. What does He say? I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Bill Ezel and I went to war with this verse from 1 Timothy. This saying is true, trustworthy, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners. You do not let your sin, no matter how recent, no matter how frequent, no matter how delinquent you think it is, don't let it keep you from Jesus Christ. So know who you are, but don't let who you are keep you from Christ. Do you understand? Are you coming? Is your heart saying, I rise up and I come to Christ when Satan tempts me to despair? tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see Him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Be this man. Don't let your weakness keep you from Christ. And don't let the world, second thing that we learn from his encounter, don't let the world keep you from Jesus. They may think, like that self-righteous Pharisee, you're not good enough for him. You're not good enough for God. You don't have enough going for you. You have too much against you. You're not good enough. You're a tax collector. Don't let the world keep you from Jesus. Their judgment is a foolish judgment. But these days, I think more than saying you're not good enough for Him, they're going to say to you, this Jesus, He's not good enough for you. That's how it is. I thought you were better than that. I thought you were more progressive than that. I thought you were cooler than that. You're not moralistic and uptight. You're not a killjoy. I thought you were more intellectually sophisticated than all that. Don't let the world keep you from Him. 
Listen. Do you perceive in Him all that you need? Do you see in Christ endless glory and majesty, splendor and beauty? Don't you find in your heart that He is the irresistible God? Don't you believe that? And maybe you have doubts about your weakness. Or maybe you have doubts that the world has fed you. But don't you doubt those doubts? Don't you feel like, yeah, but He calls me. He keeps calling me. He keeps saying that He came for sinners and that's me. So why should I let my weakness keep me from Him? The world keeps telling me that He is nothing but all, all that I see, just a, it, the sum of it, the might, the meekness, it's majesty. He's beautiful. Who can make Him up? Don't you doubt your own heart and what it says? Don't you doubt what the world and what it says to keep you from Him? I say don't shake those doubts. Give in to them. And believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And whatever you must do, come to Him. And there may be someone here saying, it sounds like you're preaching to the unconverted. I'm not. Preaching to the unconverted and the converted. Because all your life long to the day that you die and every day of the eternal age, you need Jesus. And you will be coming to Him. So come. Come. Be like this man. And I promise you, if you come, He will have no less compassion for you than He did for the beggar on the road that day. Let's pray. Thank You for Your Word, our Father. Thank You for Your grace and thank You for Your mercy to the blind beggar and to the cheating tax collector and to the prostitute and to the self-righteous, to the Pharisee, to the hard-hearted. We're all of them. We're all of them, Father. And we need You. And You have given us, so we praise You. You have given us all that we need in Jesus, Your Son. Father, I pray that none, no one here would delay coming to Christ. No one would put it off. No one would say, when I am better, when I am good and ready. It's the most tragic mistake an idea that we could have. So I pray that no one would succumb to it and all would come to Christ. Again, we would belong to You completely, wholly. Give us Your grace and give us Your mercy today just as You did from the very first when You promised that there would come one who would lay down His life, put to death all His enemies and save those who believe. Thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.